Hi, everyone. This is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. This is the second installment of the February 2019 issue. Like last month, a quick list before we start to make sure you are caught up. These are the top five articles from the prior two years with the most citations. The number of citations is generally taken as a sign that the articles made a difference to other authors in the field. Key review articles tend to be cited most frequently, and that is the case for three of our top five articles. At the number five spot, Interobserver Reproducibility of the PyRADS Version 2 Lexicon, a multicenter study of six experienced prostate radiologists. This study showed moderate reproducibility of PyRADS Version 2. In addition, no specific training was needed to implement PyRADS 2. Number four, congenital brain abnormalities and the Zika virus, what the radiologist can expect to see prenatally and postnatally. In this article, there were 45 cases of Zika virus infection. The most common brain abnormalities were ventriculomegaly and abnormalities of the corpus callosum. The top three are all review articles. Number three, clinical intravoxel incoherent motion and diffusion MR imaging, past, present, and future. This is a beautiful review article of diffusion MRI, especially focusing on new applications in cancer and body imaging. Number two, guidelines for management of incidental pulmonary nodules detected on CT images from the Fleischner Society 2017. Top-cited article, radiomics, images are more than pictures, they are data. The authors are Dr. Robert Gillies and Dr. Hetty Resack. Google Scholar indicates 764 citations, very influential. I will refer to this in our next article as well. Next, five key research articles for February. Our first two research articles are related. They are both on breast cancer. But if you are not a mammographer, I think you can still learn a few things from these articles. We are all becoming quite educated about artificial intelligence and radiomics, and both articles address those issues. The short title of the first article is Radiomics versus Convolutional Neural Network Analysis for Classification of Contrast-Enhancing Lesions at Breast MRI. The first author is Dr. Daniel Trun. The senior author is a highly impactful author, Dr. Christiana Kuhl. They are at RWTH Aachen University in Aachen, Germany. There are 42,000 students at RWTH Aachen, making it the largest technical university in Germany. It is the top-ranked university in Germany in engineering and near the top-ranked in computer science, physics, chemistry, and medicine. From the Frankfurt airport, the train to RWTH is about three hours north and west, near the border with Belgium and the Netherlands. Background. When I discussed the top citations in radiology, a review article on radiomics was number one. The point of that article is that advanced image processing techniques are now available to turn images into complex sets of numbers that represent various features in the image. I'm repeating myself a little, but I like to explain radiomics in the following manner. On MRI, we can easily describe the tumor dimensions and brightness. We are less good at describing tumor irregularity. Our brains do not provide a number for tumor irregularity. Then image texture. A square piece of metal and a square piece of wood have the same shapes. 
but radiomics features allow us to give a number to the texture that describes shiny steel or irregular wood texture. We want to combine these complex radiomics features of texture and shape with databases of clinical information. For example, certain genetic abnormalities may produce a particular tumor pattern, a radiomics genetic signature. After successful cancer treatment, response to therapy can have a unique radiomics number. Software that is readily available on the web allows 1,500 or more radiomics parameters to be automatically calculated. However, I personally do not have any radiomics tools in the clinic, and you probably also do not in your practice. The promise of radiomics is for you to identify a tumor on an image with a region of interest electronic cursor. Your software would propagate the region of interest to adjacent slices to cover the tumor in three dimensions. The 1500 radiomics parameters are calculated automatically all at once. Prior research would indicate which parameters are most important. Usually about 10 or so texture parameters are most critical. You might then use those radiomics parameters to classify the tumor as responding to therapy or not. Going back to step number one, with radiomics, you, the radiologist, need to identify the tumor to place your region of interest cursor. With artificial intelligence, the AI is supposed to think like you. The AI program is designed to scan the image, or at least part of the image, and learn to identify the tumor separately from the background. Your eyes provide the input data, but your multiple brain neuronal connections are used to classify the tumor as benign or malignant. Similarly, the AI needs to be trained to find the tumor and classify the tumor, but without manual human segmentation. AI and radiomics represent two different approaches, which is better. Lately, AI has been more intriguing to our researchers. There is, however, a very big disadvantage to AI. AI needs thousands and thousands of accurately labeled images to learn. Free AI software on the web has already been trained on millions of images in the everyday world, such as a cat or a pencil. But we usually do not have that many medical images available. On the other hand, radiomics tends to need only hundreds rather than thousands of images in order to discriminate tumors from normal tissue. Purpose. Determine if radiomics or AI has better potential to characterize lesions on breast MRI as tumor versus benign. Methods. The authors evaluated nearly 1,300 MRI breast lesions in about 500 patients. Approximately 60% were malignant and 40% were benign. Breast MRI has several image sets. The T2 images were first evaluated, but also the pre-contrast T1 image and four sets of dynamic images after gadolinium contrast injection. Subtraction images were also evaluated at all post-contrast phases, a tremendous amount of work was required to segment all of the images. After lesion segmentation, radiomics parameters are calculated. The software is available on the web and is called PyRadiomics. About 500 features were calculated for each of the 1,300 breast lesions using all breast MRI pulse sequences. After analyzing radiomics parameters, the authors had to train the AI. They used an algorithm called ResNet18, which was already trained on 14 million color photographs of common objects. Finally, a very important element was added. Compare radiomics and AI to three different expert radiologists. Results. In this context, who is the winner? For almost every prior article, I have told you that AI won. 
not this time. As usual, the main measure of diagnostic performance is the AUC value. The maximum value is 1.0. The radiologist AUC was 0.98, extremely high. Second place was AI. The AUC was lower at 0.88. Third place was radiomics, AUC 0.8. A few other interesting results. The authors did radiomics and AI on the first 650 cases, or half the data, and looked at diagnostic performance. Then they included double the number of cases, totaling 1,300. The radiomics performed the same, no improvement after the first 650 cases. Radiomics did not need that many cases to achieve maximum performance. However, the AI is data-hungry. The AI got about 10% better after doubling the available data to learn from 650 to 1300 cases. Conclusion. Number one, radiomics did well and was efficient, needing less than half the number of MRI cases to provide maximum performance. Number two, the AI, however, did better than radiomics and was more promising. In this study, there were about 1300 MRI breast lesions. In other podcasts, we discussed study sizes of 40,000 and up to 200,000 chest x-rays learned by the AIs. I think it will be very difficult to have 200,000 MRI breast examinations that are accurately labeled for training. This massive effort tells us where we are heading, likely towards more AI rather than more radiomics. Time will tell. My impression is that radiomics will be able to hit a few home runs depending on the imaging task. For example, I was able to work with a group at King's College London who wanted to characterize the trabeculation in the left ventricle of the heart. A single radiomics parameter worked for that purpose. The parameter was called the fractal dimension. Fractal dimension was much easier to calculate than training an AI. Radiomics will be appropriate for highly unique tasks where few labeled reference data sets are available. Article 2 is the next step. Does an AI help in the clinic? In every prior podcast, we discussed an experimental AI. Not this time. The title of this article is Detection of Breast Cancer with Mammography, Effect of an Artificial Intelligence Support System. The first author is Alejandra Rodriguez Ruiz. The senior author is Dr. Ritzi Mann. Both are from Radbud University Medical Center in the Netherlands. This study was also performed in collaboration with radiologists from Emory University, Boca Raton Hospital, and Munich, Germany. Background. The original publication date of this article online was November 20 of 2018. Six days later, the AI software was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration with 510K clearance on November 26, 2018. The software is made by ScreenPoint Medical, there are only a few other FDA-approved AI software products in radiology. One is for cardiac analysis, another for brain stroke detection. The rationale for the current research is twofold. First, conventional computer-aided detection, or CAD software, has not shown clear improvement for screening mammography. This is due to low specificity. Second, if an AI tool were proven helpful, it could be useful as a second reader. Double reading of mammograms is used in many parts of Europe, every case read by two readers. Let's talk first about the AI tool. The product is called Transpera. It has two internal modules. The first module looks for soft tissue abnormalities, and the second module looks for calcifications. 
the radiologist can click on a region of the mammogram and get a probability from the software of normal or abnormal. In addition, the software automatically gives an overall probability from 0 to 100% for malignancy. The AI was trained on 9,000 mammograms with malignancy and 9,000 negative mammograms. The training was performed on mammograms from four different vendors. So now, for perhaps the first time, we have a fully developed AI product that we can evaluate much like a new CT or MRI scanner. Let's see what happens. Purpose. To compare the performance of radiologists reading mammograms with and without the AI software. Methods. 240 mammograms were retrieved from two medical centers. 100 had cancers, 40 had no cancers, but were false positive biopsies at those hospitals. 100 were normal. The mammograms were interpreted by 14 MQSA certified radiologists in the United States. The average experience was 9.5 years. The average number of mammograms read per year in practice by those individuals was 5,900. One half of the mammograms were read with AI support and half were read without the AI. Each session of half of the readings was separated by one month. All radiologists were first trained how to use the system on 45 cases. The readers were told that they had a data set that was enriched with cancer compared to the normal cancer rates in the clinic. Results. Overall, the radiologists increased their diagnostic performance with the AI. The improvement was small, however. The AUC without AI was 0.87. With AI, the AUC was 0.89. The p-value for the difference was less than 0.05. The sensitivity for cancer detection was about 3% higher with the AI. Specificity was about the same. An important topic is the amount of time to read a study. The AI systems are not helpful if we need to mess around with buttons and clicks on the packs. The average reading times were about 2.5 minutes per case, but slightly less with the AI. Since there were 14 radiologists reading 240 cases, the number of cases added up. Taking over all 14 readers, the authors estimated a time savings of about 5% with the AI. One last very important result. After the radiologists were done reading, the research team had the AI read on its own, without human help. The AUC of the AI was the same as the humans, 0.89. Conclusions. This is an important and carefully done study. Now, instead of dwelling on AI software trained on cats and dogs and pencils, we get to focus on the clinical problem. AI helped the radiologists, the effect was small but present. And very important, the AI did not slow down the radiologist. The results suggest that AI could be useful as a second reader. A second reader could have a major impact in parts of the world with few mammographers and routine double reading. As part of a research network, I get daily emails that give me a summary of top AI articles in every field of medicine. I look at AI applications in pathology, in cardiology, and oncology, for example. Frankly, most of the articles are weak. Already, I think radiology is ahead of the curve in quality and depth of the research. Most often, the research in radiology is done with great care and discipline. If you have watched the AI field in this journal alone, you have seen it mature very rapidly. About two years ago, I had a discussion with the RSNA Board of Directors that we needed a dedicated journal about AI in radiology and that radiologists needed to understand and control AI applications. 
Likely the board heard this from others as well and agreed to launch a new AI journal with the inaugural issue January 30th, 2019. Dr. Charles Kahn at the University of Pennsylvania is the editor. The RSNA journal Radiology AI and today's study on mammography AI are both major steps in the right direction, evidence that radiology is beginning to own AI. Next, we have another article from RWTH Aachen University Hospital. The title is Validity of Resist Version 1.1 for Response Assessment in Metastatic Cancer, a Prospective Multi-Reader Study. Dr. Christiane Kuhl is the first author. Dr. Sebastian Kyle is the senior author. Background. Dr. Kuhl has a knack for studying critical problems in multiple disciplines. One of her areas of focus has been to improve the efficiency of MRI. You may recall her study proposing and validating a three-minute abbreviated breast MRI protocol published in 2014. Her study of an eight-minute prostate protocol was published in 2017. Each time she makes a statement, her research generates interest of numerous other research groups around the world to test her hypotheses. My feeling is that Dr. Kuhl is usually right. We know MRI protocols get inflated over time, and we do not usually provide critical analyses of what is necessary. We tend to remember the one or two cases where some odd sequence was helpful. Dr. Kuhl's topic this time is RESIST 1.1, published in 2009. RESIST stands for Response Evaluation Criteria in Solid Tumors. These guidelines determine whether or not an oncology patient is classified as having a response to therapy or not. Radiologists are the primary physicians who make this determination. The response categories are as follows. Complete response, defined as disappearance of all target lesions. Partial response, at least 30% decrease in the sum of diameters of the target lesions. Stable disease, no change on the images. Progressive disease, at least a 20% increase in the sum of the diameters of the target lesions. You should use dedicated resist cancer software to help you measure and track the size of lesions. Dedicated software improves the reproducibility of tumor size between different radiologists. But software is not the only factor. The interpreting radiologist must choose which target lesions to measure. This is very important and relates to the next factor, exactly how many target lesions are measured. In RESIST 1.1, a maximum of five target lesions are measured and a maximum of two lesions per organ. Not too complicated. I measure two METs in the liver, two in the lung, and one soft tissue deposit for a total of five, and I'm done. This is simple and much less time-consuming than RESIST 1.0. Up to 10 lesions were measured and up to five per organ. But if you are the patient, the goal is not to save time for the radiologist. The goal is precision and accuracy of diagnosis. We know very well an oncology patient comes to the hospital for their three-month checkup. Yes, it's nice to see the oncologist and look at the lab values, but what they really want to know is whether the tumor burden on CT is larger or smaller. If there are a few lesions, that's not a problem. But what if there are 20 lesions? Then you, the radiologist, gets to pick which of the five of the 20 lesions become the official target lesions on the baseline study. How do you decide? Resist does not give guidance which five of the 20 lesions are to be measured. Purpose. Dr. Kuhl notes that RESIST 1.1 has never been prospectively validated, 
Specifically, what happens if different radiologists choose different target lesions at baseline? Methods. 300 oncology patients were included. They underwent baseline and follow-up CT. Overall, each radiologist reader interpreted about 1,000 CT scans, about one-third for the baseline exam and two-thirds for follow-up CTs used to classify disease status after therapy. There were three radiology readers for each of the 1,000 CT scans. The patients had a general mix of solid tumors, GI, lung cancer, breast cancer, etc., just as you would expect in a large hospital. Based on the resist criteria, the baseline interpretation of each radiologist was then used to classify the follow-up CT as progression, stable, partial response, or complete response. Results. The problems started already on interpreting the baseline CT. Not surprising, all three radiologist readers chose the same baseline target lesions only about 40% of the time. 60% of the time, at least one of the three readers chose a different target lesion. Overall, resist classification of disease status was in agreement for the three readers only about 70% of the time. 30% of the time, patients got different discordant resist decisions on whether their cancer was getting better or worse. When the readers did happen to choose the same target lesions, agreement on resist disease response was very high, 96%. If we look at the subset of cases where readers chose different target lesions only, the agreement on whether the patient was getting better or worse was only 50%, toss of a coin. Conclusion. Is this a problem or not? Should patients get a different classification of disease progression based on who reads the CT scan? Of course not. The explanation is that some tumor deposits may be stable while others may grow. This is called clonal diversification of metastatic cancer. All radiologists have seen that. Measuring only five tumor deposits does not capture the range of diversity of growth of tumor deposits throughout the body. Perhaps the solution is to measure every possible tumor, or at least do more research to determine how many tumors actually need to be measured to have consistent results. If we do not have consistent classification of disease response, we do not know what to tell patients and we may not understand if a new cancer treatment works or not. Dr. John Butman at the NIH is an expert neuroradiologist and a perfectionist. He went one step further. All brain MRI studies at NIH are sent to a 3D registration engine, tilting and rotating each new brain MRI to the 3D coordinates of the baseline MRI. Watching John read MRI studies is a study in synchronized perfection. He automatically loads the last six or so brain MRI studies in perfect registration on four large monitors. I wish our air traffic control system worked as well. If you want to know if your brain tumor is increasing or decreasing, just ask Dr. Butman. The neuro-oncologists studying brain disease at NIH were spoiled. If they left NIH, they were shocked to find that their next radiology department had to manually load the current and prior MRI scan, then had to manually adjust the slice locations, not accounting for tilt and rotation of the patient's head. Back to reality. If your PACS is able to automatically register slice locations of two CT scans, the problem of tumor follow-up should be almost trivial. You find and measure all the tumors on the baseline CT, and the PACS saves the tumor coordinates. Since the follow-up CT is registered, take those same XYZ coordinates and have the PACS automatically find the tumors on the follow-up CT. We need that software tool. 
Dr. Kuhl's work shows that Resist 1.1 has a problem. Resist 1.1 was published in 2009. Now, 10 years later, the problem has been recognized and needs to be addressed to improve patient care. The next article is about brain gadolinium. The title is Long-Term Excretion of Gadolinium-Based Contrast Agents, Linear versus Macrocyclic Agents in an Experimental Rat Model. The first author is Dr. Gregor Joost at Bayer in Berlin, Germany. Background. A brief summary of prior studies about deposition of gadolinium in the brain. Retention of gadolinium contrast in the brain has been reported most often in patients with repeated administration of linear contrast agents. Example trade names of linear agents include Magnavist, Omniscan, and Multihance. There are also reports showing retention of gadolinium in the brain using macrocyclic contrast agents, but those reports are much less frequent and gadolinium deposition is less. For example, the bright brain signal may not be visually evident with macrocyclic agents, but instead can only be measured quantitatively. The areas of the brain with abnormal signal are the dentate nucleus and the globus pallidus. But gadolinium is not the only material that can change MRI signal in these regions. Calcium, iron, manganese, and copper can accumulate in the brain as well. Also, brain irradiation from tumors can result in greater signal in the dentate nucleus. Therefore, the MRI signal intensity is not specific for gadolinium. To have some confidence that the abnormal signal is due to gadolinium, the researcher must search the medical records and try to exclude other reasons for abnormal brain signal. You may think that autopsy could be used instead to more confidently evaluate the chemicals that are present, and indeed this has been done. But then, we do not regularly perform MRI just before a patient dies, and autopsies are infrequent. The time between gadolinium MRI and the eventual autopsy can be highly variable. Also, the circumstances around the patient's death may have contributed to breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Purpose. The researchers of the current report wanted to eliminate all of those complicated variables and look at the long-term changes in the brain MRI for linear and macrocyclic gadolinium agents. Methods. The study was done in rats. Different groups of rats were dosed with each of three linear contrast agents and three macrocyclic contrast agents. The dose was quite high. We would call this triple dose of gadolinium given on four consecutive days in one week and then repeated the next week. After dosing, MRI was done after five weeks, six months, and 12 months. The animals were sacrificed to examine the brain at those same time points. Results. For the linear contrast agents, Brain MRI signal was abnormal at five weeks and then very slowly decreased over one year. In fact, at one year, the MRI was still visibly abnormal. For the macrocyclic contrast agents, no visible MRI signal was evident at five weeks, nor at any of the longer time points. However, using chemical analysis, gadolinium could be detected. But the amount of GAD was about 10 times lower with macrocyclic than for linear agents. Between five weeks and six months, the gadolinium concentration decreased to normal with the macrocyclics. Conclusion. This is a very well-controlled experiment of gadolinium distribution in an experimental model. It shows that linear contrast agents had a very slow decrease in brain gadolinium. 
At one year, the brain signal was still abnormal. The excretion pattern for the macrocyclic agents was very different. First, after five weeks, GAD was detected chemically but could not be seen visually on the MRI. At six months, GAD was essentially gone, the same level as in animals that were in the control group. The main criticism, the GAD injections were at very high dose. On the other hand, the brains were normal, renal function was normal, and the blood-brain barrier in the animal was intact. No radiation or tumor. These results help explain human observations of persistent gadolinium retention in the cerebellum at one year. The next article is about lowering radiation dose. The title is, Detection of Colorectal Hepatic Metastases is Superior at Standard Radiation Dose CT versus Reduced Dose CT. The first author is Dr. Corey Jensen. The senior author is Dr. Shiva Gupta. The study was done at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Background. Over the last year, we received a number of manuscripts about the challenges of using low radiation dose. The American College of Radiology started a CT dose registry to standardize radiation dose. If you participate, your CT radiation dose for various body parts are uploaded to the ACR. You receive regular reports about your radiation dose compared to other sites. If you see that your department is at the upper range of radiation dose, you are likely to reduce your dose. On the other hand, detecting soft tissue lesions is a difficult task. To retain image quality at low dose, we are supposed to use some form of iterative reconstruction. As a reminder, the old method of CT reconstruction is called filtered back projection. Iterative reconstruction instead uses known characteristics about your CT scanner to improve the reconstruction quality while reducing image noise. Radiologists have noticed altered image texture with this method. The next step towards improving image quality is called model-based iterative reconstruction. All manufacturers have implemented this. Model-based iterative reconstruction uses complex modeling back and forth from image space to reconstruction space. It takes longer to perform the reconstructions, but image noise is reduced. The goal is to preserve our ability to detect lesions while reducing radiation dose. Purpose. To examine the impact of model-based iterative reconstruction with 50% dose reduction on the detection of lesions in the liver. Methods. This was a prospective patient study. Our CT scanners come with preset standard doses. The CT preset radiation dose was compared to a second scan in the same patient at 50% dose reduction. 50% dose reduction was chosen to be similar to the mid-range of the radiation dose reported at all sites across the country in the ACR registry. The standard radiation dose scan of the liver was acquired first. The reduced CT dose was acquired immediately after during the same breath hold. Three readers were asked to find the liver lesions. The authors concentrated on those difficult small lesions from 0.6 centimeters to 1.5 centimeters. There was a median of four lesions per CT. The standard of reference was based on all available information. Patients in this study were seen regularly for follow-up at MD Anderson, so they had an average of 10 other imaging studies to establish the standard of reference. Results. There were 51 patients with a total of 260 liver lesions. The mean patient age was 57. The mean patient weight was 80 kilograms. 
the average of the standard radiation dose CT was 26 millisieverts, or 26 milligray. The average low-dose CT resulted in 53% reduction of the radiation dose, near the mid-range of the ACR dose registry at 12 millisieverts. Main results. For the smallest liver lesions less than 6 millimeters, 81% were detected with standard dose and 60% with reduced dose. For lesions from 6 millimeters to 10 millimeters, 99% were detected with standard dose and 84% with low dose. For lesions more than 11 millimeters in size, there was no difference. Conclusion. For the smallest lesions, most of which were proven metastases in the liver, reduced radiation dose with advanced model-based iterative reconstruction resulted in missed lesions. The radiation dose reduction was about 50% from standard CT settings, with radiation dose of about 12 millisieverts. About 20-25% to of lesions overall were missed at low radiation dose. How does this compare to other studies in the literature? Early studies were optimistic about model-based reconstruction. More recently, we see carefully done studies, such as this article, looking at the impact of low dose on difficult-to-find lesions in the liver. Recent conclusions are consistent. Model-based reconstruction methods are not performing as well as expected for lesion detection. The noise in the image is reduced, but the texture pattern changes. Major studies on this topic have also been done at Mayo Clinic, led by Dr. Fletcher and his colleagues, but they used a different research technique. In the Mayo Clinic studies, a standard dose reconstruction was done and low-dose CT scans are simulated. Those simulations show a 40% dose reduction did not impair the detection of liver lesions. But in the current study at MD Anderson, there was an evaluation of real patients with a range of body sizes range of tumor sizes, and range of timing of contrast enhancement in the liver on CT. With 50% dose reduction to achieve the average dose in the ACR dose registry for the abdomen, liver lesions seem likely to be missed. In conclusion, this is a well-done research paper using real-world conditions that tell us a lot about the trade-offs of using radiation dose that may be too low in some cases that could compromise patient care. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.